Thanks for tuning into the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I've got a slightly different podcast for you because I'm going to be the guest. Uh, recently, I had the honour of uh, being invited to do an Instagram Live with my good friend, Astrid Naranko, the anti-diet dietitian. And we got to speak about my PhD research into muscle loss and body fat distribution and how it can affect so many different aspects of our health as we get older. Uh, I had a lot of fun and we covered so many interesting topics that I thought it would be really cool to share the conversation on my podcast. Um, I also realized that I haven't spoken about my research on the podcast before and for anyone who might not know what I do outside of the podcast or Instagram, I figured this would be a good chance to introduce them to what I actually do. So my PhD and my research. Um, we talk about a lot of different things, uh, muscle loss and fat gain as we age. Uh, the effects that has on a lot of other lifestyle diseases, how we store fat and how that affects health, metabolically healthy obesity and metabolically unhealthy normal weight, and even different exercise strategies to help improve muscle mass. The only drawback was that we didn't actually have enough time uh, to get into the nutrition side of things, so maybe next time. I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it, and if you do, I'd really love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribing for more great podcasts. And if you can, please share the podcast on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Uh, not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps to promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come and speak. And that means I can get even more great content out to you. And on a final note, if you know someone who you think this information could benefit, or maybe a coach or uh, someone interested in this area of nutrition, please let them know about it. And maybe it can be of some help or some use to them. So on to this conversation with Astrid. Let's talk science. Hello. Hi, Astrid. How are you doing? I'm very good. How are you? Good. Very tired, but good. Oh, uh, What's happening? I uh, know. I've just been uh, I've been busy writing a few papers, and uh, I finally got to submit one yesterday. And uh, I finally got a good night's sleep. And for some reason, I'm even more tired after a good night's sleep. <laughs> oh, probably your body needs more sleep and more recovery. I, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. Um, well, let's get into the right questions. Um, just a very quick introduction about yourself for those who might not know you, and then we go straight into the questions. Sure. Um, so my name is Richie Kerwin, and I'm a PhD researcher in Liverpool John Moore's University here in the UK, and uh, a nutritionist. And I study, um, so I look at sarcopenia and sarcopenic obesity, and we'll talk a bit more about those later on today. Um, but uh, I study those in relation to uh, cardiometabolic health, specifically heart health. So I work with people in cardiac rehab or cardiac rehabilitation, so people who've had some sort of a heart condition. And the whole idea of my research is to find a way to increase muscle mass in these patients um, in a, a kind of realistic fashion through diet and exercise and how we can use that to reduce their risk of having a heart attack in the future. So the whole idea is building muscle to look after our heart as we get older. That's amazing. It is it is looking great so far. Or do you still have some some a little a little way to go, or are you finishing yeah. already? We've quite a way to go now because so I'm about a little over a year and a half into my PhD, but we got permission to carry out our intervention study, our actual like main experiment, 
um, literally two weeks before the COVID-19 lockdown here in the UK. So unfortunately, our research has been put on hold until that is all kind of sorted out. Because obviously, we're working with an older population, a cardiac population, so they're at even a higher risk uh, of heart disease. So we want to make sure that they're safe. So we're going to wait for a while. But I've been keeping busy with a lot of papers in the meantime. Awesome. That's great. So let's get into the questions. And the first one was about, since you already have, talk, have been talking about your research and most of the things you, you are getting a lot of experience on is about sarcopenia and how this can affect um, older population, but it might affect older people as well, not necessarily just older people. So what is sarcopenia? And then we might be able to uh, get more questions after that one. Yeah, sure. So just kind of give an overview of sarcopenia. Is that it? Yes, correct. Sure. Um, so, so sarcopenia uh, is basically the scientific term for muscle loss. And it's specifically, it's muscle loss as we age. And I, I think the easiest way to describe it to people is if you think of an older person that you've known all your life, and if you can, you can probably remember that they, they were a little bit bigger back in the day and they seem to have finished over the years. And that's kind of a, an example of what sarcopenia looks like. It's basically the loss of muscle as we get older. Um, and it happens to absolutely everybody. Um, it can start as early as our 30s, funnily enough, which is uh, kind of surprising for a lot of people, but it can start as early as your 30s. And it just progresses as we get older. And there's a few reasons for it. One of them is, uh, well, the main one exercise and lack of sufficient stimulus to maintain muscle because as, as we know, um, if somebody wants to grow muscle, the only way to do that is to stimulate the muscle with exercise. And if you want to maintain muscle, it's the exact same thing, we need to exercise. And generally, as people get older, they tend to become less active. Um, there are uh, hormonal reasons for it. So for example, uh, men, we start losing uh, testosterone um, from our 30s, our testosterone levels start to, to drop down. Women, when they hit menopause, their estrogen levels plummet. Um, which can have a major effect on sarcopenia as well. Um, there are other like pro-inflammatory re reasons. So for example, when we get older, oh, we tend to have a higher level of pro-inflammatory cytokines in our blood, so a higher inflammatory state that reduces muscle mass and makes it harder to build muscle mass. Poor nutrition, um, and even poor nutrition, despite the fact that we might be trying to eat as well, because one thing that happens when we get older is we also get something called anabolic resistance. And what that means is, um, if you eat a certain amount of protein, so for example, if a 20-year-old uh, guy or girl eats a 20 grams of protein after exercising, that might be enough to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, muscle growth, right after their, their training. But for an older person, they could need twice that amount, so maybe 40 grams or even more, just to stimulate protein synthesis to the same extent. So that happens in older people. They've got uh, poor digestion, so they don't absorb amino acids as well. So there's a load of reasons that it happens. So it's, it's not just a matter of kind of saying, oh, you lose muscle, so what? Okay, you know, maybe you don't look as good at the beach. And, and that's, that's not the kind of main concern. The main concern with sarcopenia is that it actually is related to a lot of other conditions as we get older. So in people who are sarcopenic, we see that they have higher incidences of heart disease, um, higher incidences of diabetes, which is perfectly normal if you think that muscle is the main sink 
for uh, glucose when we eat it in our body. And if you have lower glucose, you have less places to store uh, glucose. Uh, sorry, less muscle. Um, so it's also related to osteoporosis. It's related to frailty and risk of falls. Um, it's related to poor quality of life because people can't do all the things that they used to be able to do in the past. They're not able to do their household chores. Some can't walk upstairs. Um, it's also related to higher levels of cognitive decline and even depression. Because then again, if you think about it, if somebody's mobility is affected by muscle loss, they can't get out as much as often uh, as they used to. They can't go see their friends. And that really, really does affect somebody mentally. It can result in depression. So there's a, a, a huge amount of conditions that are connected to uh, sarcopenia, the loss of muscle. And another factor that comes into play is when people lose muscle, they become less active. And when they become less active, if they don't change their diet, they tend to gain weight. <clears throat> so what we see in a lot of sarcopenics is they actually gain a lot of body fat. And that combination of body fat, which to a certain extent is, is linked to obesity with sarcopenia, we, those are combined and they get a condition called sarcopenic obesity. And what that means, <clears throat> excuse me, is um, just a low level of muscle mass and a high level of body fat. Uh, some people would call it skinny fat, I think is uh, one of the common terms um, used for it. But it's, that is an even worse, uh, has even worse outcomes for health than sarcopenia alone. So you've got the combination of uh, high body fat and low muscle mass. So from a, a public health perspective, it's a serious issue. And it's a serious issue that a lot of people will potentially be dealing with um, when they get older. But the good thing about it is there are some strategies that we know that, to, that we can use to, to deal with that as we, as we age. And maybe we'll talk about those as we go on. Awesome. Well, you, you covered more than I was expecting to ask you, so that's great. Um, um, it, it looks like it is like a, a vicious cycle. Like if you lose muscle, then you lose strength, you lose quality of life, you lose... Um, the capacity to move more or you lose, especially in uh, elderly, they lose independent independency in doing their uh, daily activities by their own. Uh, they pretty much get worse immune systems. Uh, they are likely to get sicker and it's like a vicious cycle. And the more malnourished they get or the less they are the, the, the more the, the muscle they lose, the worse they become. And it kind of continues on this cycle. And you also mentioned that there are other group of people that might be at risk of suffering from these um, sarcopenia issues. And you mentioned women with menopause that usually when the estrogen drops and plummets, they tend to increase the, the risk of losing more muscle. And I think I read in one of the papers uh, that you sent me before that the likelihood from getting um, from losing muscle increases in, in, in like amazingly since the moment that we we turn thirty and we start losing muscle like per year like about a kilo or something like that. Uh, you said something about that. Can you clarify? What, what 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 happens every every year uh, from a point? Is there a specific point where we lose more muscle as we go get older? So it, it, it does generally start in 
the 30s. Uh, some, some research will say that it starts in people's 40s. Uh, I think you'll find that in women it actually starts earlier. And there's a few reasons for that, but probably one of them is just lower levels of physical activity potentially in women. Um, but it starts to get particularly serious uh, when somebody hits their 50s. And at that point, you can see a 1% to 2% decline in muscle per year, um, which can be quite considerable. And some research has shown that between somebody's 20s and somebody's 80s, they can lose up to percent of their muscle mass. So if we imagine that somebody in their 20s is at peak muscle for some individuals um, in the normal population, they can lose up to 40% of that muscle by the time they're in their 80s. Now, that's a very extreme example, but it is an example of something that can happen. Um, and what's, what's almost worse than losing muscle um, is what comes with it, and that's losing strength. And that's called, so we said sarcopenia is the loss of muscle, and we generally mean muscle size. But if we get very specific, there's a condition called dynopenia, which is the loss of muscle strength as we get older. And that's actually much more serious than sarcopenia. And it, for, in some people, it can be a 4 to 5% decline in muscle strength every year from their 50s. And the reason that's so significant is because if your muscle isn't strong, it's not able to do all of those things that I mentioned. You know, it's not able to get you get you out of bed in the morning. If you slip, you're not, um, you're not able to catch your butt, stop yourself hitting the ground. You're at a greater risk of breaking a hip or something like that. Um, you're not able to do your daily chores. You know, it's, it's very, very serious. And I think when we talk about sarcopenia, people think just about muscle size, but muscle strength, its function strength, is, yeah. if, if not probably more important than, than the actual size of the muscle. Great. I found that what I was trying to refer to, and I'm going to read it just because uh, it, it's a really inter interesting fact. Fat mass increases with muscle loss in two potential ways. The most direct way is the storage of energy contained in atrophied muscles as fat. And women on average lose approximately five, six, five to six kilos of lean tissue between age of 25 and 65 years which would result in an increase of a slightly less than one kilogram of fat. It's interesting, hey? It is, and it's, it's, it's scary as well when you think about it because we're, we're going from, let's say, a, a, a healthy body composition to what can be considerably unhealthy um, as, as you get older. And like, I think just particularly in the case of, of women, um, I don't know if you, if you want to ask uh, um, about how men... Do you want to leave menopause to a little bit later in the conversation? Because, or, or could, oh, you if, leave? if you if you want to bring it up and it's it's at the right time, uh, amazing. Let's talk about yeah, so, that. Uh, I think because you mentioned that that example with women and the change from their twenties up in, uh, as they get older, what's what's very interesting is in women because of the menopause, you've got a very very interesting change in, in hormonal patterns. Um, and if a woman is not getting HRT, so hormone replacement therapy, what happens is you get that massive drop in estrogen and progesterone as well. Um, and that results in a loss of muscle mass. And uh, as you mentioned, when we lose muscle, we become less active, we start to gain weight. What also happens around the time of menopause is you've got sleep issues um, and you have... Uh, Obviously, with sleep issues come changes in uh, hunger hormones and we start eating, women start eating more. Women tend to gain weight around the menopause. It's quite common. But what a, a lot of women notice around menopause is that they don't store fat 
in the same way that they used to. And they, there's often a shift. So in most women, they've got what's called a, a gynoid uh, fat distribution. And basically what that means is most women tend to store fat in their lower body. So around, around their buttocks, around their thighs. Whereas men have an android fat distribution, which means they tend to store fat around their chest or around their waist. Now, we know for a fact that the gynoid, the female type of fat storage, is much healthier from a metabolic perspective. And that's generally why women, younger women are healthier than men from a, let's say, a, a, a diabetes and a heart disease perspective. And women are protected by their, by estrogen, by those female hormones. But after menopause, they don't have that protection anymore. And what we see is there's a change in fat distribution in women from that gynoid, the more female fat distribution pattern, to the more abdominally centered android male pattern. So women often notice that they, as they gain weight around menopause, they start storing it around their midsection a lot more, around their abdomen. Um, you also get an increase in, in, in visceral fat as well. And the problem with that is, is we know that that fat distribution is, is quite unhealthy. And that's why um, for postmenopausal women, heart disease is actually their, the number one killer. So a lot, of, a lot of people used to think that, you know, oh, breast cancer is the number one killer of, um, you know, postmenopausal women. It's not. It's, it's heart disease because they've lost the, the protection of uh, estrogen and progesterone that they had previously. Um, and they're more similar to men from a hormonal and a, a metabolic perspective. So that's the problem there. You're losing muscle mass, which is metabolically unhealthy. You're gaining fat mass and you're gaining it in an unhealthy pattern in, in women specifically. Um, and then if you talk about men, men are just screwed either way. You know, it's just like we're, we, we gain fat in all the wrong places anyway. Um, we tend to be unhealthier anyway. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough situation. So yeah, at, as we get older, it's, we have to be very, very conscious of that. But like I said, you know, obviously we, we'll get into it. There are strategies that people can, can do, can, can take to, uh, to avoid or reduce their risk of, of some of these conditions. And I'm, I'm very, I know I'm saying, you know, there's things that you can do uh, to, to help this. The reason I say that is because I don't want to be sensationalistic about sarcopenia. It, it is a condition. It, it affects a huge people. It, it will virtually affect everybody who is paying, who's watching this and it will affect somebody in their life. But there are things that we can easily do with our lifestyle factors to, to help kind of mitigate the risk. Do you think in regards to menopause, uh, someone who uses a hormone, hormone replacement therapy would, that is obviously a, a way to sort of mit mitigate all these symptoms and um, consequences from, the, from menopause, would that kind of reduce the risk of heart disease and um, all these negative consequences in health when it comes to mm, menopause and hormonal changes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so from all of the research that I have seen and read on menopause and from some of the, the, the menopause experts like myself, HRT is quite possibly one of the most wonderful treatments available. Um, And I think it has a lot of bad, it has a bad reputation because of some really, really poor studies that were kind of uh, released in the, in the late 90s, um, early 2000s. And it's just amazing what it can do. Because if you think of it, the cause of all of the problems that happen after menopause, everything. So uh, hot sweats, hot flashes, uh, poor sleep, uh, higher risk of heart disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, 
all of that can be prevented by taking HRT. Okay, um, and it's absolutely astounding how beneficial it can be. And like you know, I, I would never recommend a woman takes it, but I would always recommend that a woman around the time of menopause speaks with her doctor and gets as educated about menopause as possible, um, because it is an important issue. And if it can prevent a lot of health issues for women, yeah, I think um, I think it's a, it's a great option to have. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more with you in that because um, I do work with a lot of women that are going just into menopause. And this is a, a, something that I, I discuss often with them. Just talk to your doctor because there is obviously some, some things that, that we can do to protect you uh, in, in terms of health and also give you the advantage of obviously use this, this therapy in your advantage to reduce the risk of uh, getting health problems away. And also feel good because obviously being back with hormones and everything a little bit more stable will will, pre will bring back more stability in, in many ways. Uh, body composition, in your mood, in how your muscle mass and your bones are protected. So there's a lot of different things that why that can be beneficial. Now, there's something that you mentioned that I am pretty interested to talk about because there is a lot of misconception about uh, inflammation causes obesity, but the inflammation term is a little bit vague and a lot of people uses, use that term very uh, inappropriately or very misleading. Uh, so what, when you talk about inflammation, how can that cause obesity or how can that affect you have affect obesity in some way so what would you con con my question would be what would you consider as inflammatory factors or actual inflammation so yeah that's a that's a broad question and it, it's a good one because like you said a lot of people talk about inflammation all the time now um, without having uh, much of an idea about it and i suppose the first thing to say is that some degree of inflammation within the body is absolutely essential for life, okay? So everything that body, all of the processes that go on, some amount of inflammation will occur, and that's perfectly normal. So, for example, if, if you get a, an infection, you, your, your wound will get inflamed, and that's because your body is fighting to protect you, you know? So we do need it to an extent. Um, the issue with inflammation is when it, we get something called chronic inflammation, Okay, so if we think, like, if we use the example that I just mentioned of getting a cut and, you know, your the, the, the site of the cut or the wound gets inflamed, that's what we call acute inflammation. It's for a very, very short time and it's used for a specific purpose. With, but with chronic low-grade inflammation, we see a high level of inflammatory cytokines. So that can be a lot of different things. There can be things like uh, there so Tumor necrosis factor is one. C-reactive protein is another. There's a lot of interleukins, like interleukin-6, uh, interleukin-12. These are all related to inflammation. But there's a lot of these different factors. And when their levels are higher than normal baseline levels for a consistently long period of time, that's when we start to see um, a lot of negative effects on metabolic health. And I suppose to, people will ask, where, where does inflammation come in or how does it start? And I think the easiest way to say it is when we have an accumulation of fat, um, fat 
it, fat tissue, it's a very, very interesting tissue. People used to think of fat just as a, a storage tissue that, you know, you, just, you eat food, if you eat too much, it stores in your fat, that's it. And we know that there are different types of fat that have different reactions to fat storage. So if we talk about like classic fat storage where we see it under the skin, that's what we call subcutaneous fat. So subcutaneous fat in general, it's quite good at expanding um, and it can expand, expand to a certain point. Um, but if we keep eating and keep expanding that fat, what happens is our fat tissue doesn't store uh, the fat that we eat or consume or the excess that we consume as efficiently. So what happens is normally when we we start increasing our fat tissue, we get an increase in cell number, okay? So we get more adipocytes. But if we get to a point where our body say, okay, we can't make any more adipocytes, um, and this is there's a different level for that in every people, what happens is those adipocytes start to get bigger themselves. So the adipocytes, uh, it's called uh, adipocyte hypertrophy. So the hyper, uh, adipocytes get larger themselves. And we know that larger adipocytes are less healthy for a number of reasons. And one thing is, because the fat tissue expands, um, obviously every tissue in the body needs vascularization. It needs blood veins. It needs blood vessels to su supply it with food to keep it alive. But if you have lower levels, if you have high le levels of blood body fat, you get lower levels of um, capillarization. So you get less blood flow into that, supplying it with nutrients and taking away the waste products. And what happens there? is we start to see some changes like increases in uh, oxidation, increases in inflammation. And when we get that little increase in inflammation, what happens then is you start getting um, uh, blood cells, uh, white blood cells specifically, like monocytes and macrophages, they start to infiltrate into that fat because they think, oh, something's going wrong here. There's a bit of inflammation. I'm going to go in and see what's going on, see if I can fix it. But then they're like, oh, there's a lot of inflammation going on. Those monocytes are macrophages, white blood cells, they start releasing more pro-inflammatory cytokines. So they start causing more uh, inflammation um, within the body. And that just leads to this kind of cycle of increased inflammation, recruitment of more monocytes and macrophages, more inflammation. And that level of inflammation remains high within the body. Um, and that's what we call chronic inflammation. And that's where the problems come. And those problems, specifically, if we're to talk about them, one of the main issues with that is that chronic inflammation, we know, is a cause of insulin resistance. So it means we're not able to use insulin as effectively, and we know that that can lead to things like uh, diabetes down the line and other forms of metabolic syndrome. It can lead to that high, high level of inflammation can also lead to an increase in atherosclerotic development or the development of um, atherosclerotic plaques within our arteries, which can lead to coronary heart disease. Um, we know that uh, the chronic inflammation can also lead to increases in blood pressure. It can lead to increases in um, uh, low-density lipoprotein and decreases in high-density lipoprotein. And basically, all of these things together are what we would call metabolic syndrome. Okay, so it's a, and it's a condition that's very, very common these days, and a lot of it is just because people are eating too much, not exercising enough, and um, gaining a lot of body weight, and that's where we start to see those those negative metabolic effects. Exactly. Yeah, and when you say that, it is interesting to know that um, there is, that level of inflammation can really affect health in so many ways. And when you, when you talk about that, 
wh who you, would you say is uh, at higher risk of suffering for, from these low levels of inflammation? Anyone who gains fat or there is, it's a, there is a specific population that is more, a higher risk than others? Wh what would you say about that? Yeah, so that, that's a really interesting question, and we're getting more information on, on that. Um, and what we know is that there are distinct subtypes of metabolic phenotypes when it comes to body fat gain. So if we think of somebody who is, um, and I'm using this term very, very uh, lightly, um, uh, normal weight individuals who are healthy, there's a term for those which is called Uh, no, metabolically healthy normal weight okay so it means that they've normal body weight their metabolic health is fine in a lot of people who suffer from obesity we have something which is called metabolically unhealthy obesity and what that means is as they uh, have become obese we get those increases in inflammation we get the development of metabolic syndrome and all of those conditions that come with it so um, insulin resistance Uh, dyslipidemia, hypertension, things like that. That is basically what we would consider to be the normal type of obesity. But there's a subgroup within obesity, and these would be called metabolically healthy uh, overweight or metabolically healthy obese. And what it means is these individuals, they, they have higher levels of body fat, but they haven't developed uh, insulin resistance. They haven't developed dyslipidemia, you know, problems with their blood lipids. They haven't developed hypertension. So for all intents and purposes, they are, they are healthy. Now, there's a problem with that term. Uh, actually, before I finish that, I want to get back to that, uh, just to complete the, the, the categorization. There's also what we call metabolically unhealthy normal weight, okay? And these are people who, again, they, they seem to have a normal body weight measured by BMI, um, but they have dyslipidemia, they have uh, insulin resistance, they've got uh, high blood pressure. And there are reasons for that which we're going to get into, but a lot of it is down to genetics, okay? Um, so basically, at a much lower body weight, these people suffer from metabolic syndrome compared to other individuals. Um, one, one thing that I often uh, we, we say is that European populations or populations of European descent they tend to be able to gain a lot of body fat before they start um, noticing a lot of the negative uh, metabolic health uh, effects. But if you look at a population like South Indian, so somebody from, let's say, Pakistan or India or something like that, um, they, they can actually develop metabolic syndrome at a much lower BMI. So it seems that the way that they store body fat seems to be a lot unhealthier. Okay, and leads to a lot of the metabolic problems we're seeing. So, the, uh, as I mentioned, that there were there were people who are metabolically healthy, obese, and metabolically uh, unhealthy, obese. Okay, and I'm just using these terms because these are the most common terms used. But one thing that we see that is a difference between the the healthy individuals and the the unhealthy individuals is the way they store fat. And it seems that the metabolically healthy uh, obese individuals are actually able to store more body fat subcutaneously underneath the skin, and they also tend to have smaller adipocytes, whereas the people with metabolically unhealthy obesity, they store, they obviously store some under their skin, but they store more around their waist, okay, so abdominal obesity, 
And they also store more around their organs, which is called visceral fat or visceral adipose tissue. And they also have larger adipocytes. And as I mentioned, the larger adipocytes are less healthy. And the problem with that is when we store a lot of fat around visceral adipose tissue, visceral adipose tissue is actually very metabolically active and it secretes a lot of these pro-inflammatory cytokines that we were speaking about earlier. It's got a lot of what we call um, adipose tissue dysfunction. So it's got poor um, uh, blood flow into the system. It's got a lot of uh, white blood cells within the fat tissue generating more cytokines and pro-inflammatory compounds, which are leading to systemic inflammation. Um, So we've got, we know that that's the difference. People have the differences. One of the main reasons is is genetics. Like, uh, unfortunately, some people just store fat in a less healthy way. Um, but we also know that there are some kind of food and exercise solutions that we can do to, to help with fat distribution. Um, but yeah, with, with, with those individuals, it's, it is very, very easy for them to suffer the negative health effects of gaining body weight. But one thing I also should mention is that, you know, people often say, okay, there's metabolically healthy obesity. Not everybody who has obesity is, is unhealthy. That's not specifically true. And I think the problem is that you can have somebody who has metabolically healthy obesity, um, so they've got no problems now, but the likelihood of them having problems 10 years into the future or 20 20 years into the future is actually much higher than somebody who does not have obesity. And with metabolically healthy obesity and uh, somebody who is normal weight and healthy, if you look at their their levels of blood sugar, uh, if you look at their levels of uh, cholesterol, their different cholesterol panels, if you look at their, hy- their blood pressure, the, the normal weight individual will always have uh, better levels. The normal healthy individual will have better levels than the person with obesity. So th- the person with obesity will have, let's say, higher levels of these problems, but they just won't get to the point where they will be diagnosed as having insulin resistance or having high blood pressure or whatever. Um, And as they get uh, older and as they gain more weight, those problems start to become more pronounced and they've got a higher level of heart disease again. So it's not just, oh yeah, if if you're metabolically healthy obese, you're absolutely fine. No, there there still may be a problem in a few years. Um, So yeah, those are the the kind of categories that you have. And I guess if you still, if you have obesity, but you're metabolically healthy, you could potentially do a lot of uh, preventative uh, interventions before something happened, and it can allow you to maybe have a much better prognosis in 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 the future if you start doing something right now. Uh, whereas people that might already be suffering from some metabolic issues, they might be facing some challenges uh, in the sense of, well, I'm already like mentally they feel like they're screwed. They might not be able to do something about it. Uh, and there are a lot of challenges that I've seen in patients that they are ready um, because of, of the metabolic issues. It is affecting the, they are more likely to gain more weight. They are more likely to do less exercise and lifestyle affects them as well. Um, and it's a little bit of a difference in them. And also I, I really kind of, not sure if this is your area, but usually uh, I face this in hospital uh, every time I treat patients that they come into a rehab hospital and they 
are told by their doctors to lose weight, but they have already like a hip surgery or they have knee problems uh, or joint problems. And they're told to lose weight, but they, they're pretty much unable to exercise much what they can do. And pretty much what they can control is, is their nutrition. And it can be a little bit challenging because if exercise is not a, a true option or something that we can use uh, uh, as an ally to help us to uh, promote better rate of weight loss, it can be very challenging for this, this patient. So are you aware of anything uh, in particular on these interventions for these sort of people that they are, they have an injury, they struggle to, to exercise, they struggle to increase their exercise activity thermogenesis or their needs because they, they pretty much in pain, um, or they have, they are forced to stay, um, less active. Have you seen anything to help them to, when, when it comes to, help them to lose weight or something like that. Yeah, so, so that's a, obviously a very, very difficult, it's a specific situation, but it is a very, very difficult situation. Um, I want to give one example, and then I want to talk a little bit about that. But one example is, so in older populations, because obviously a lot of my research is with, with quite older individuals, um, we see that older individuals who are stuck in bed, so who so are basically confined to their beds, they have a, a much higher risk of losing muscle because they're not moving at all. And that's a serious problem. So one thing that is being used in some um, research is they use, uh, I'm trying to think, I can't remember the name of them, but you've probably seen these devices before. They're basically electronic packs and they come with pads and you stick them onto your muscles and they, they work your muscles for you, right? You know, you, okay. you know, you, like you, them you for, for the, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so they're basically these packs, just clinical versions that are put onto older people's bodies and they stimulate the muscles in their bodies to, to simulate exercise. And they can actually be beneficial for people who can't exercise. So that is one option for somebody who is very, very immobile. But what I would say is, is if somebody has difficulty with exercise, um, I think speaking with a, uh, a physiotherapist who has experience with individuals in rehabilitation to kind of get uh, an idea of what options are available. Because obviously, you know, in the fitness world, we're all very, very eager to say, oh yeah, just go to the gym, hit some machines, do some bench press, do some squats. Not everybody, you can't expect everybody to do that. Um, so I think having a, PT, a physiotherapist who's experienced with different rehab modalities is a really, really good idea to give somebody an idea of the options they have available. So, you know, not everybody is going to go to the gym um, or not everybody can walk or run easily. But maybe like if somebody needs to use a walker, even walking more with their walker is getting more activity. Um, and another modality that's used regularly with older people is resistance bands. And obviously in this 19 period, everybody's been using res resistance bands for, for their workouts at home. And it can genuinely be a good form of exercise for people. So I think it's not a matter of saying that uh, no matter who you're dealing with, they, they can't deal, they can't do any exercise. Obviously, there will be some people like that. But I think for the majority of people, there will be some form of exercise that you can, one, do on a regular basis, and two, enjoy enough that you'll be consistent with it. And I think it's just a matter of finding that and speaking with somebody, with a professional, who can give you those options.
because like if you look at Instagram you're going to think that your only options are doing squats and bench press and that's absolutely terrible for most people because they don't want to do it um so yeah i i think that those are my thoughts on on the exercise question that's that's great and i i would say there's another there's another thing that we i i think i want your thoughts on and we hear that all right so we want to prevent muscle loss when it comes to treat sarcopenia or those populations that are at, at higher risk of losing muscle uh, obese populations menopausal women and elderly we want to also focus on what's the best exercise or prescription and we hear well if you do aerobic exercise that turns to burn more calories and you want to increase your calorie deficit if you want to lose fat uh to prevent gaining more weight and on the other hand there the research is pointing that exercise and resistance training is ideal for retaining muscle and uh, in improving that muscle protein synthesis in your body So ideally we want kind of a mixture of a little bit of both to create the better uh, the best option for someone who wants to prevent gaining weight but also retaining muscle. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I I think you kind of answered it at the end when you said ideally we want both. Um there's you know there's always these conversations in in the health and fitness sphere that kind of asking which is better is it is it cardio or is it weights and you know it's is like you don't have to say that one is better than the other both have different functions and both have useful functions and when you combine both of them together you tend to see the best results from a, a health perspective um i would say that like we know for a fact that if you look at lifelong athletes people who've done exercise their entire lives if you compare people who have done um endurance type training so a lot of running jogging stuff like that to people who do a lot more strength sports like weightlifting the weightlifters do have better muscle mass and better better um muscle function their muscles are larger and stronger but the people who do endurance are still quite healthy as well they're just not as strong as the people um who do uh, the, do the weights and those two groups compared to people who do nothing there's just no comparison they're so, they're so much healthier um obviously my research focuses on resistance training so lifting weights um with older people uh but that's just because we have to use one modality just for for science and research just to determine if a, if a if it can have an effect um but i remember i had a meeting with one of the hospitals and the rehabilitation teams um about my research and we said what we were going to do and one of their concerns was obviously they do a lot of cardiac uh, cardio type uh, uh exercise with their cardiac rehab patients and they were worried that those patients would stop doing it and i had to say listen we're not here to say that resistance exercise is better than cardio we're just here to see does resistance exercise work and then if it does we can incorporate it into a routine that also uses cardio as well so i'm i'm very much a fan of using both cardio is great has amazing um benefits for heart health um even more so than muscle uh, muscle building exercise but then resistance exercise really has those benefits on maintaining muscle mass and strength So yeah the combination of both is is I think essential for for all around health. And I've heard and I and I think I hear a lot of people saying cardio cardio is useless um it's just a waste of time and I think we we need to refer to an excessive amount of cardio maybe 
uh, inefficient or just a, a waste of time. But when it comes to finding the right amount uh, that will be beneficial for your health, cardio is actually, uh, as you said, is, is really beneficial as a uh, prevent, preventative uh, for health in general. We talk about how beneficial can be for increasing insulin sensitivity, reducing oxidative risk in your body. Um, and it also stress. Like I, I, I felt even when I'm so stressed and I do just a, a running session or a little bit of cardio combination with my weight, I feel like I, at the end of the, the session, I feel less, less stressed much more relaxed and I actually feel like my sleep is better when I add a little bit of cardio sessions in my, um, in my training. So I think ditching cardio is not a, it's not the great uh, way to see it, but more so how to increase it in a way that can be find the optimal way to increase included in your training sessions but also thinking about how important it is to do resistance training within your, uh, within your program. Mm -hmm. I, I think one thing that's really common amongst people who say that cardio is useless is that they all tend to hate cardio. Um, and I'm, I'm not a massive fan of cardio myself, like just from doing it. Uh, and that's why I think with cardio, it's just a matter of finding something that you enjoy. And, yeah. you know, I, I tell people, look, if you like playing basketball, go out and play basketball with your buddies for half an hour. Go play football on the weekends. For, for me, for example, my form of cardio is I, I cycle to work uh, every day. Well, I, I used to, but I, I cycle now, obviously, during, the, during lockdown. Um, but that's like a, a total of 40 minutes of cycling, maybe 50 minutes of cycling a day. And it's part of my commute. I just work it into my day. And I think a lot of people can do that if they, if they kind of look at their lifestyle and think of what can I do. Um, but like, yeah, most people, when they think cardio, they think Stairmaster, burpees. burpees, hitting the treadmill, like the most horrible forms of exercise around. Like I, I know I couldn't do them. Some people can. But I think it's a matter of finding what works for you. And I, I think that, that applies to every aspect of nutrition and training, really. Absolutely. And I think uh, it, is, it is just to be smart to find out what you like and how can you implement it in your training uh, even if it's like combinations of different cardios like if you have the the privilege to access a gym and you have different cardio machines uh, playing with the numbers with some targets that you can make it as, as dynamic as possible and make it fun that's where you can see it in a different way rather than like a punishment or like, well, I, this is the only way I can burn more calories so I can eat them back when, I, when, I, when I'm at home. So it is like looking at what can be uh, sustainable over time and can be fun as well. Absolutely. Um, now, I've got one more question so um, to wrap it up. And I know that you've been doing a little bit of research into what has been happening with uh, uh, COVID-19 and how has that been affecting people's behaviors and lifestyles overall? Can you talk me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, I've actually I've been doing two COVID-19 related papers at the moment. Um, one was submitted last week and one was submitted yesterday, actually. Um, the first one was about, uh, like, like you said, lifestyles. Uh, and the whole idea was that we, when people 
when COVID-19 lockdown originally occurred, um, I think the thing that people all noticed first is that people were eating more because they were at home and that people were uh, also moving a lot less. But we didn't have any data on that. Now, so there has been some research over the past couple of months that has come out. And there was actually a really, really good um, a group. Uh, and I think the lead author was a guy called Aman. Um, and it came out and it was basically a study of five different European countries. And what they did was they used phone data and data from uh, fitness trackers and apps uh, to basically measure people's uh, physical activity over time. And what they noticed was that there was a massive drop in moderate intensity physical activity. There was a massive drop in step counts. And obviously there was a massive drop in movement away from the home um, over the course. So what we're seeing basically is a massive drop in physical activity, which is one of the issues. Uh, another study looked at food habits and it noticed that people were eating more main meals. They were eating more snacks and people were tending to eat more comfort food. So things like uh, potato chips, uh, ice creams, desserts, things like that were becoming more common. And then another study looked at people's weight gain and it found that quite a large proportion of people, I think about 30% of people did gain weight over the course of um, the three months. But they also found that about 20% of people lost weight. And I think what's kind of interesting there is that it shows that the stress of the whole COVID-19 situation, it can affect people in different ways. And some people tend to gain weight very, very easily. And the COVID, the COVID situation just put them into, a, into a, an environment where they were able to gain weight more easily. Whereas other people, when they're, um, if they tend to be underweight, they tend to lose even more weight. So it seems, it seems to exacerbate whatever negative food habits they have. So if they tend to overeat more, they overeat more during COVID. If they tend to undereat, they undereat more during, uh, during COVID. So that was um, some really, really interesting findings from that. So I've, I've put all of those into a, into a, a pretty large review on how uh, COVID is affecting people's health, people's weight, people's activity, and how that can lead to sarcopenia and some other conditions. So hopefully that will get accepted for uh, publication soon. Yeah, it, it, sounds, it sounds really good. And it, it kind of makes sense when you talk about the different responses, especially when we think about how different people respond to stress. So, uh, or if they're depressed, anxious, some people are uh, use, use food as a coping mechanism and other people pretty much think that food is not a priority and then they just get away from food because it is definitely something that is the first thing they kind of forget about when they're anxious or stressed. And these people tend to lose weight the most and the people that eat emotionally or use food as a coping mechanism, they will, they will gain weight and they will eat emotionally so they will probably eat these extra uh, high palatable foods that uh, are comfort comforting and feel it just feels good to have them when you're under under anxiety or a depression or a stress and this is very 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 common to see in patients in, in the hospital when I, I do work in a mental health ward and I see patients that always are complaining about that when they depress, they don't. They just actually tend to lose weight when they're stressed and depressed, and go to the other extreme with patients complaining that the 
since the moment they started uh, getting more stressed and more anxious, they started getting more weight and binging and eating more at home. And I guess with the COVID-19 and the lockdowns, we've been forced to reduce our kind of physical activity for those who weren't able to get out, get, get outside or um, go to their normal routine. And I guess that affected the the common habits that usual uh, the people would, would have. And it kind of makes it challenging. And probably that's why we're, we're seeing these responses of, well, people have lowered their physical activity overall just because uh, of the conditions of the situation. Uh, and some other might just be affected in the same fact that everything is closed. Uh, gyms, are, gyms are closed. Everything is um, it's like this. Why am I going to just go outside? There's no reason. This is, I'm not motivated. I have to work at home. Everything at home, and yeah, whatever. It's like fuck it. I'm not doing anything. I think I, I, I wrote this in, in the paper, and I said it has never been easier to be physically inactive right now. And um, if you combine that with the fact that we are we have so much access to food. It is a perfectly obesogenic environment as well. So yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a tough situation. Absolutely, and I and I hope that that actually gets published because I think that's going to um, bring a lot of awareness on yeah the how environments and the the the, the things that can impact how we respond to food. So all our external environment, the people we live with, uh, the situations, how can they lead to whether we eat more or whether we don't eat as much. Actually, I've seen some interesting story, stories from people that have been able to pay more attention to their eating while being at home just because they have no option to go outside or have the, the work meeting. They don't have to go to restaurants all the time or get, get, go outside uh, with the social events. So they are more kind of concentrated and focused on, well, I have to cook myself. I have to prepare my meals. And they've been able to be, be more aware of what they eat. Obviously, not everyone is aware and they're not trying to uh, improve their lifestyle or their, their, their diet. But the, those ones who are were trying before and were struggling. Now with this situation, they actually felt it was the best time to focus on their nutrition. So it is, it is a little bit all over the place. Some people have benefited from this. Some other people have seen a really, really strong impact on their, their healthy lifestyle behaviors and how that made it worse. And other people have seen that is all over the place and they were just looking forward to everything open back up to kind of, well, when everything goes back to normal, I go back to normal. In the meantime, I stay at home and stay sitting in the couch watching Netflix. So it is kind of, well, what's the, what's the answer? Yeah, well, I, I, think, I think that is genuinely true that people have different reactions to the different situation. And obviously it's something that we need to take into consideration as let's say health and fitness professionals, everybody's situation is different. And not everything is in the same way. So, so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's just good. So, Richie, where people can find you and what are the things that um, I know you discussed? So, 
talk, talk us a little bit about what are your future projects and where can, can people find you? Sure. Um, yeah, so I think I'm most on Instagram and my handle is uh, B underscore more underscore nutrition. So B more nutrition. Uh, I've also got a, a website, which is www.bmorenutrition.com altogether. And then uh, I've got a, a Facebook page, which I virtually never use. Um, but yeah, I'm always happy to talk to people on Instagram. I try to do stories a lot lately. Um, and as for future projects, I am um, working on a couple more papers. Uh, hopefully going to have two more submitted within the next week. Uh, fingers crossed one of them is on protein intake and muscle mass gain, and then the other is on chronic kidney disease. Um, and yeah, that's basically what I'm working on now. And then as soon as I can get back into university, I will be doing more research with my, with my cardiac population. So fingers crossed that will be relatively soon. And you and you also have the podcast, or you're not you're no longer doing anymore. Oh, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm still in the podcast. Um, haven't had a couple of guests. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since I've had a, a new episode, but it's just that uh, things have been kind of crazy. So I've been focusing more on uh, getting papers out. But uh, yeah, I'll be back onto the podcast within the next couple of weeks. Okay, fingers crossed with that as well. Well, Richie, really? thank you so much for joining me and having this great conversation. I think a lot of people will find find this beneficial and very educational and informative. And I appreciate your time and being able to have this conversation with me. Astrid, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, in your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at B underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.